As, yes, as Matt has said, my name is Trev, and I'm delighted to bring the word to you this evening. Glad to see so many people out. Really thought that this would, this cold weather would keep us away, but true Calgarians have shown up. Praise the Lord. Uh, we're in a series called Covenant, and it, we're in Joshua chapter 10, so if you want to turn there, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible this evening, would you raise your hand, and one of the ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible uh, if that's your first Bible, we, we want you to keep that Bible and to read it because you're going to need it if you're going to come back and, and hear about God's Word. But as you turn to Joshua chapter 10, which is Joshua is the fifth book of the Bible, so start at the very beginning and, and, and go write five books. Uh, or in your app, that's even easier. Just hit Joshua and you'll arrive at Joshua chapter 10. But as we get there, what I want to do is set the stage by asking you, and this is a little interaction here. Um, if you've ever dreamt about doing the impossible, if you're like me, and you probably aren't, but I'm a little quirky this way, but I love to play that game where I ask stupid questions and see what kind of uh, answers I get. And one of those is, what superpower would you have? Has anyone ever played that game? What superpower would you have if you could choose? So let's play a little game here. What superpower would you choose if you could? Anyone? Flight? That's, that was the first one this morning as well. What's that? Regeneration. Okay, that's new. Okay, interesting. You asked for it, Trev. Flight? Okay. Anyone else? Invisibility? Anyone? No, you guys all like your lives just the way they are? I, I have the weird one in in that no one else ever says this, but I would really love to be a deep sea person and just have, like, be able to go to the depths of the ocean. Even though that would be ultra creepy, I think that would be awesome to be able to be uh, able to breathe underwater. Have you ever prayed an impossible prayer? Have you ever thought about that? Some sort of impossibility. Have you ever thought of doing impossible things? I think we're actually enamored with this whole concept. Lots of movies. Like I, I'm not totally into these kinds of movies uh, where they're, they're just about superheroes. I know, is everyone into superhero movies? I feel bad. I'm not part, it's, it's not part of my uh, DNA, I don't think, to, to like superhero movies. But I understand that there's an attraction to doing the impossible. If, you, if you're in business and, and you, you try to come up with some sort of business plan, you're highly encouraged now to come up with some sort of impossible dream and goal and business plan or else you're, you're not really dreaming big enough. And, that, and that's the way our business culture is pushing us. Personally, we want to go for the impossible. Like imagine the job that you've always wanted is amazing. You get paid for it. You, you love doing it. It's impossible to obtain, but, but shoot for it, everyone. I think we have a culture that tells us all about being impossible, doing the impossible. Well, tonight we're going to talk about really something that I find nearly impossible to believe. And yet, because I believe that God, the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the God who has revealed Himself in His Word, is the God of impossible I think it's exciting for us to hear about this at this particular time in the series. It's about right because so far the series that we've been in really has been about um, a, a God who has been large in our lives. He's, he's been very sovereign. That word sovereign means in con complete control 
of everything. And the, the book of Joshua has depicted this greatly. And what I love about this particular passage is this shows how this very God who's large and in charge of the entire world is also a very deeply personal God. Here's how we're going to do that. We're going to take you through chapter 10 of Joshua. And I really want to get you up to speed uh, in this book of Joshua as we go. And, and so just to remind you, we're in a series called Covenant, and, and I repeat this almost every week for anyone who's new, and if you're new, welcome to Urban Grace. We're glad that you're here. And the reason why we're in this series called Covenant is because uh, there was a promise that was given to a man by the name of Abram very early in the, in, in, in the Bible, also called God's story. That's what we're calling it, God's story, but it, it's, it's known probably to you as the Bible. And very early in, in the Bible story, uh, God gives to Abraham, Abram, then becomes Abraham, uh, a promise where he says, I will multiply you, I will make you into a great nation, I will build you with lots of people, and then I will eventually create a place for you to worship me. That's why you see conveniently that the promise is about a place and a people. You could reverse that as, as well. It, it doesn't really matter. And really, the whole Bible story is about God fulfilling this promise. And the book of Joshua, in particular, is about God creating that place for people. And the whole book of Joshua is really all about some key vi uh, military victories uh, because the, the place in which God has his people to be was presently occupied. And so they, they, they did go in and they did capture cities and they, they, they did eliminate people groups. I, I understand that that's part of it. That's the elephant in the room that we always have to talk about. But we really dealt with this in chapter 6. So if you need more info on that or you need to go back to that, I would encourage you to, to look up chapter 6 in our series uh, online. Um, but where we are in, in the story, really, let's pick up in chapter 9. And chapter 9 is really important uh, because chapter 9 sh uh, is, is deeply connected to chapter 10. And so in chapter 9, chapter 9 is the third victory of a number of victories that have been happening thus far in, in the book of Joshua. Uh, we have a key victory in Jericho, we have a key victory in Ai, and we have a, not, not really a victory in Gibeon, but kind of. And the reason why is it wasn't done kind of the way, it, everything's kind of been unorthodox for Israel. As Israel, which is the, the name of the people of, of God, uh, that's the description of the people of God, um, it, it's really been strange the way God has created this people and, and, and this place, and he's established these victories. And so in, in Gibeon, the people uh, do not get to go into battle as they normally would have gone into battle, but instead some, some neighbors hear about all that's going on, all these victories, and they actually get terrified of what's happening to Israel. Uh, Israel's coming in, they're, they're literally obliterating people, people are aware that God is behind them, it's very much a, if God is for us, who can be against us kind of idea, and so as they go uh, moving toward Gibeon, what actually happens is, well, well let me start reading uh, the story in a bit, but what actually happens is Gibeon decides instead of fighting Israel, they'll try and make an alliance with them. And so they, they do something really sneaky. They pretend to have worn out shoes. Uh, they obviously go to Value Village and they find all kinds of worn out shoes. And they, they show up with worn out shoes. They show up with worn out wineskins or boxed wine, if you will. Uh, empty, empty wine boxes. They show up with moldy bread and they pretend that they've been on a long, long journey looking 
to make some sort of alliance and say, hey, we're not that far away, or, or we're a long way away from you, but we want some sort of alliance. And then actually what happens is they're the neighboring country, and, and Israel is, is duped by this. They're, they're, it's a really sneaky, underhanded way. And in the process, what they do is they make a covenant alliance. That same word comes up, a covenant promise with Israel. And they say between us and you and God, we make a promise that we will take care of you. We'll never go to battle with you ever again. We'll never defeat you. In fact, you can serve us and our people a lot like Israel had served Egypt a couple, a, a couple of decades earlier. And so they shake hands on it. They agree on it. And they kind of go their separate ways. So reads chapter 10. That's where we are in the story. Let me start reading there. As soon as Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors, so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, if you guys don't have baby names yet, pay attention, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, I triple dog dare you to name your kid Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, that's a good band name actually, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So let me explain to you a little bit of what's happening here. So far, uh, Israel has hung out right about here. All of their victories have been over here. There's Gilgal. That was a major uh, victory. Um, there was Jericho. That was a major victory. And uh, Gibeon was, as a city, was over here, but the people were in and around here. And so as they were kind of marching this way, they made the alliance with Gibeon. Now what happened is everyone was hearing about this. I mean, even in that day, even before Twitter, even before Facebook, even before the internet, can you imagine a time before the internet? This news traveled really fast. And this king right here of Jerusalem heads it up. And he says, hey, my friends in Hebron, Debir, Eglon, Lachish, Jarmuth, let's get together. Let's head off this problem. Let's go take Gibeon and show Israel we mean business. And so they gather together and there, you see the little blue line in there. That's how they figure they would have traveled along those lines. Those would have been the common highways at the time. And here's where Israel is over here at this particular time. Okay, let's read on. And the men, this is verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come, to, come up to us quickly, and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of the war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them 
into a panic before Israel, who struck them with the great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down, he threw down large stones from heaven on them. The Lord does throw down, by the way, apparently. Uh, large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is great irony. So what's, what has happened is Gibeon has somehow fooled Israel into this idea of building some sort of alliance. And, and in doing so, what they, have, what they have done is they, have, is they haven't just made an alliance, but now they're actually asking for help. Now, if you know what the previous chapter is about, you know that Israel wanted to come in there and obliterate Gibeon. And they were, they were lied to. They, were, they, they snuck this in under the radar. And now they have the audacity to come forward and to say, hey, by the, is, by the way, Israel, I know that we lied to you, but we want you to now come and protect us. You owe us. Now, if, if I was Israel, this is what I would do. Sorry, sorry, I can't make it. Um, I have like mountains to look at and other things to do. And we've got that Jordan River to clean up and all kinds of things. This would have been a super convenient way for Israel to get rid of the Gibeonites that they didn't really want as part of their people. But actually, God says, no, you made a covenant with them. You made a promise with, with them. You are called to reflect me as a people. And I always make good on my promises. And so I want you to make good on your promise to these people. And so Joshua says, mount up. We're going to go head off. And, and help these people. And on their way, what ends up happening here, um, oh, I, I should, oh, I'll forget the map. What happens is Israel travels all through the night and, and they kind of at about early morning, scholars think, uh, they come across and they literally bump into uh, all the five Amorite kings. And they kind of stumble in them. It's not, very, it's not unusual in ancient Near Eastern warfare for people to be thrown in some sort of a panic. Uh, they're totally surprised. They expected to arrive at, at the city of Gibeon, take over these people, and they literally run into Israel and, and these enormous hailstones when God decides to throw them down. And more people die from the hailstones. Now, th this to me is the first miracle that I find in the text, the first impossibility. First of all, that there's large hailstones that somehow kill the enemy, but don't kill Israel, number one. Number two, have you ever been in a, who's been through a hailstorm? It hurts, but it's not that deadly, is it? Unless you had like basketball-sized hailstones, then maybe I'd stay inside. Even then, I'm not sure it would be all that effective. Need some sort of a shelter. But whatever it was, these hailstones were, were large. Like I, I, My dad takes out hail insurance every year. My dad's a farmer. I'm from Saskatchewan. Hail's not that big of a deal. It's not that scary. This hail was scary. Hail that big is scary. And it's really miraculous in, in many ways. And I think what's happening is, is that there's a, there's a panic like, oh my goodness, 
The sky is literally falling down. Story continues. Joshua sees that um, they're winning the battle. But he literally is just looking for more time. I love this. He's just looking for more time. And so starting in verse 12, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon. The moon in the valley of Ajalon and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Jashar was a, a book of poetry that listed all the cool things God had done in the, in the life of Israel. We don't know anything more about it other than that. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So that's fairly self-explanatory, so let's just move on. Anyone kind of stunned by this? Anyone pause? Hey, wait a second here. This is the kind of stuff that literally shuts Christianity and authority in in Scripture down for some people. Because they look at that and they go, are you kidding me? Is, is Is this for real? Well, hang with me for a second as we talk about this. There are really four kind of views that are thrown out there in regards to this particular text. Uh, The first one is the traditional view. And here's the traditional view summarized. That's what it means. The sun stood still for about a day and the moon stood still. I know it's quiet in here because that would be a strange thing to watch. It's hard to even comprehend, like, some of you are like, well, wait a second, what is, does that mean that the solar system stopped? And, and I would say, I, I don't know how it happened. The, the text doesn't seem that excited to, to, to break it down. It doesn't even seem interested in breaking it down. In fact, uh, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but it, it seems like there's a totally different mindset going on here. The second view is that this was a solar eclipse. As they were coming in, uh, the sun was in one part of the sky and the moon is in the other part of the sky. Have you ever seen that when the sun and the moon are up in the sky at the same time? It's actually a a pretty remarkable view. But this one, this happened in in old times. um, It was was considered really negative. So anytime there was any sort of solar eclipse type thing, it was assumed that this was one of the gods in anger showing his his wrath and terror towards culture. I don't know that this is a real credible view because it just, a solar eclipse usually makes things darker and more confusing. It wouldn't help the light situation that I think Joshua needs. He needs more time in the day. He doesn't need more weird things happening in the sky. The third view is that um, this is an, uh, an omen. So, so an, an omen is, is something that you just, you, you just kind of call up uh, the, the spiritual realm. Again, it, it doesn't make any sense of the text. Uh, weird things happened when these, these celestial beings uh, or, or, or whatever you call it, or, yeah, planets, stars, when strange things happened, uh, 
this is often considered something deeply spiritual, which is so different from our culture, right? We don't think of it as the least spiritual thing. And the fourth view is, is really common, which is that this is really figurative. That the Bible doesn't actually mean that. I know it says it, but it doesn't really mean it. Now, I, actually, this is not, I don't hold the fourth view. I'll let you know. I don't even hold views two and three. I hold the first view, and, and I know some of you are going to say, that's because you don't think at all about things. Th- that's not what I'm saying. And that, that's an easy one, but the figurative one uh, I, I struggle with. <laughs> and the reason, it, but, but I understand it. Let me, let me just say that. I understand this view, and I have sympathy for this view, and if you hold that view, we're not kicking you out of the church. We're not, nothing like that. In fact, I would, I would respectfully disagree, but say that's very understandable. And, and the reason why is that I exaggerate all the time, I, not while I'm preaching, of course, um, but when I'm not preaching. Y- you, you would have too, right? Like, have you ever gone, oh my goodness, this day is taking forever, do you mean forever or do you just mean a long time or do you, like, is it more than 24 hours? No, of course you don't mean more than 24 hours. You just mean it's a long time and it feels like a long time. Or your work day is just crawling along. Is it going slower than it usually does? Never is. But it sure feels like it. So I'm sympathetic to the figurative view. Let's just put it that way. But I still say what's interesting is the text doesn't seem to be that interested in trying to explain what actually happens. My traditional view is somehow God tilted the earth on its axis and the sun never set. That's what I think is, is possible. And you say, no, come on. God couldn't possibly tilt the earth on its axis this way. Well, I do believe God created the world, so... If he wanted to do that, I do actually believe he could. Now, what's interesting about this text is this. Is that that's not even the part that is interesting to the author. You notice the author is not like, um, oh, this miraculous thing happened. The text says, Joshua prayed, God listened, and there's never been a day like this before when what? The sun didn't set? No, actually, chapter 10, verse 14, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. That's what the author can't believe happened. You have to remember that in this particular culture, uh, everyone believed that gods were in charge of the sun and the moon and the stars. They had whole religions that were dedicated to the sun and the moon. Maybe it was like, hey, the sun was blood red. It's like, yeah, that's because one God was angry and he beat someone up and it turned bloody. That's their explanation for almost everything. So they're not surprised when something like the sun doesn't set for a whole day. They're shocked when the God of the universe decides to become personal and listen to a person praying. That shocks them. I find that amazing. And so if you can just... Put yourself kind of in that position. The reason why I don't think we have a lot of explanation of this is I don't actually think the purpose of the author was to scientifically explain. And just so you know, science doesn't prove everything. I know, I know it's great to have empirical data. And did you know that there's, there's really, it's only been in the last couple hundred years when we even basically 
throw stuff away because it doesn't scientifically make sense. Like pre-enlightenment, nobody had a problem with this stuff. Post-enlightenment, we have. Enlightenment is this, this weird age where everyone says, now science and reason and logic rule everything, and if, not, if it can't be proved, then it's not real. What's weird is that enlightenment was brought on by a bunch of Christians trying to verify what God had made. It wasn't brought on by people who hated God. It was brought on by people who loved God. And so I say all that to say, please don't throw this text out just because you don't understand exactly how this went down. And regardless of your view, I think Scripture does say we always have something to learn from Scripture. And so what actually can we learn? Well, many religions, many religions show God to be a big, gigantic God. Many religions are what we would say are theistic, which means they understand that there's a, a creator God of some kind. Intelligent design is, is kind of in this, where there's, there's something behind this. It's intelligent. There's theist. There is a God, but he's so personal. It's like he wound up the solar system, the earth, and put it down on the ground. And like one of those little toys that stomps around, he just let the earth do its thing, and he's so depersonalized. And then there's really a lot of religions that would have a super personal God, whereas God isn't, isn't some other being, it's you. You are God, and God is in this pencil, and God is in this table, and God is, is in every small particle, and that's what God exists. That's kind of the New Age movement. They would, would talk about that. Kind of, I know I'm generalizing here, but I'm, I'm pitting these two against each other, but I think this is what I really love about Christianity is that we have in this particular text an explanation of a God who's in control of the universe who could have tipped the axis like this, but is so deeply personal that he listens to a prayer of a person. One person. Not a group, not a prayer group, not a prayer labyrinth, not a bunch of people praying for weeks and weeks. One guy who says, please, God, we need some more time. How about 24 hours? Would you be able to make the sun not set for 24 hours? And so far in the book of Joshua, actually what we have is God explaining a lot of things. God says stuff and then they obey. Joshua is God said and the people respond. God said and the people respond. It's the first time in the text where we have God doesn't say anything. People ask for stuff and God responds in a deeply personal way. This subject of tonight is really on prayer. And you say, what, has, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, we're going to talk about two things. I think some of us uh, really struggle with our prayer lives. Some of us don't think at all about our prayer lives. Some of us don't even know what prayer is. Prayer is simply talking to God. Talking to God. But some of us have problems with our prayer life because we're missing information or understanding in one of these two categories perhaps we're we're so we understand god to be so personal but but we we don't really ask for much because he's he's kind of this personal god but he's like a personal god in a wheelchair who's not really capable of much we kind of have to push him and wheel him around a little bit and help him along and we treat god almost like the triple a like if, if we need a little bit of boost every now and again, we call him up and we say, can you come and give us a boost, a battery boost? And once we have that battery boost, then we're all good to go for 
however long our battery lasts, and then we, we just kind of come back to him. That our God is so personal that we don't see him as powerful. And some of us are on the other side, and we think that God is this enormous, powerful God, and that he changes things, and he's all over the universe, and he, he, he is all-powerful, but he doesn't care enough about the things in my life. And tonight I want to talk to you and say, I think this kind of understanding of who God is brings health to our prayer life. That we can talk to God who is an enormous personal God. He's gigantic in that he's over all things and yet he's so deeply personal that he actually cares about you finding a parking spot and getting a good deal on sale at the store. That he cares about those kinds of things. And so let's just go through a bit these two things, the God of the impossible, and I just want to build your vision a little bit of the God of the impossible. You know, Jesus really talked about impossible things, and, and we kind of key in on the text, and if you're kind of empirical in mind and logical reason, and that's the way you run your life, um, I want you to know that, that this doesn't answer all the questions. One of my favorite albums on the planet is by my favorite band called TV on the Radio. You've probably never heard of them, but they're out of Brooklyn, so they're like super crazy, experimental, weird. Um, not everyone gets it. I like it. One of my favorite albums is called Dear Science. And it's called Dear Science because it's basically a 12-song letter to science and saying, Dear Science, you don't have the answers for everything in the world. They're not Christians. They're far from it. But they do have this idea that not everything can be explained through logic and reason. Much can, but not everything. Jesus didn't seem to be that interested in, in giving explanations for why the earth was round or, or anything like that. We don't find any of that in, in Jesus' ministry. But those weren't the real impossible things for him. Those were some of the simple things. The impossible things for him were things where people heart were changed and what i mean by like the decision making center in our lives when i say heart that's what i mean i don't mean like the 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 organ in your body that pumps blood and 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 has an attack i mean i i mean the decision making center the place somewhere between what you feel and your brain maybe maybe that's where we would call it but there's hopefully you're catching what i'm saying But Jesus had an encounter with his disciples. And to give you some background on, on this particular passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 and 26, his disciples are having a conversation with Jesus about who can actually, um, who, who can actually enter into the kingdom of God. And this is what the text says. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich per person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
What's interesting is then, again, to understand the cultural, there was an assumption in that culture, and I'm not talking about like the not God-worshipping culture. I'm talking about the Jewish Hebrew culture that followed God. There was an assumption that when you were provided for by God, that means he loved you and wanted to, to bless you. And so if you were wealthy, it was assumed that it was because God liked you. And if you were poor, it was assumed because God didn't like you. And so if you were born blind or something like that, people would say, what, did, what sin did your parents do that made God hate you so much that made you blind? That's how they thought. And if you were born wealthy, they said, what, what did your parents do in obedience that made God love you so much to give you this? And Jesus flipped all that upside down and he says, I just want you to know that it's very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason why he would say that is because wealth has this crazy way, and you and I know it, it is this crazy way of like eagle's claws getting into our hearts and just ripping us apart. It controls what we do and how we do it. You say, I don't know if it controls us. L let me ask you this. If you knew that your pay would triple by changing jobs, how many would resign tomorrow morning? Most of us, if not all of us. Because it has that kind of grip on our hearts. And Jesus said, I want your heart. And when wealth has a grip on your heart, it's difficult. And so can you imagine the disciples' brains spinning? Well, wait a second. Poor people obviously don't get into the kingdom of God. Um, um, Blind people don't obviously get into the kingdom of God. Anyone with any bodily problems doesn't get into the kingdom of God. Now you're saying, Jesus, that rich people don't get into the kingdom of God. Who's going to get into the kingdom of God? What, do we, what, do we, what game are we playing, Jesus? And he says, oh, no, you think this is impossible. But actually with God, it is possible. Because God is the God of impossible things. You can't imagine a world where God can change hearts. But Jesus says, I am in the business of doing impossible things. That's what I do. That's why I came. The greatest impossible thing is, is, is we'll, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but is, is the fact that God came to us personally. I, I find this almost impossible to believe, really. That's why I keep repeating it week after week came across a story of, of impossibilities. In the last couple of weeks, I was at a conference on, on human sexuality. And so I was just thinking uh, kind of at the same time, and I've actually asked this question before, like, who would be the impossible person that you would think would, would like meet Jesus and have life transformation and completely change their lifestyle and everything about them? Think, of, think about that person for a, for a moment. Think about the most impossible person you can think that would, that would become a Christian, turn their lives over to Jesus, and allow them to completely transform everything that they do and have and say about themselves. This story reminds me of someone like that. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a biography in 2012. It's a bestseller. Uh, I highly recommend it. I haven't made my way through it yet, but I have heard her story in person it's called secret thoughts of an unlikely convert it's an excellent title because here is get this a feminist english professor who is an ultra left-wing lesbian 
at Syracuse University. And she is in the business of helping to understand whether books have integrity. So one of her jobs was someone handed her a book and said, can you tell us if this book has complete integrity? Can you tell us if all the arguments line up? Can you tell us if the, the book as a whole makes sense? And can you review it for us? And here is the book, Why Homosexuality is Wrong. Can you imagine handing that kind of a book to that kind of a person? She's just like, oh, this is sweet. I love this. And so what she does is she begins to read this book, but then she starts to look at some of the biblical references that are made in the book. And she puts the book down and starts reading the Bible. And over time she meets, go figure, a pastor who's really, really conservative but just loves on her and cares for her, and lets her journey through whatever, and she comes to her own conclusion. Do you know what she is today? She is, <laughs> yeah, number of times. She speaks nationally. She's married to a Presbyterian pastor, and she homeschools. Like, I'm, I'm not saying anything else, but I would have never guessed that. Unlikely change. Impossible change. But guess what? The God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is the God of the impossible. What's impossibility for you? What's impossibility for you? What do you think is like, no, this, is, this won't ever make sense. This could never happen. Maybe it's a, a spouse a spouse that just won't believe in Jesus. Maybe it's a, it's a job where you just can't see the end of anything. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's yourself. Maybe you're like, I'll never, I'll never believe the gospel. I'll never believe it. I, there's no way I could believe this stuff. It sounds so hokey. And now you're talking about sun standing still. This is craziness. Guess what? We're talking about the God of the impossible. If you have a problem, my friends, with a God who maybe has tilted the axis of the earth like this for a 24-hour period, I'm afraid you're going to have a lot more problems in Christianity because I think there's a lot harder things, a lot more impossible things to believe, to be honest. I'm not belittling your questions in any way, but I'm saying, let's just, let's just come out and say it. Let's just come out and say it. you're going to have problems with things like the Trinity, where God, who is one and described as one throughout Scripture, then reveals himself, especially in the New Testament, as three in one. Have you ever tried to describe a three-in-one God to a six-year-old? Try it sometime, just for fun. Their brains will just, and then they'll stop. I remember talking to my little Eve about this. She's like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, Dad. I was like, I know. And guess what? I believe that. I believe something that's almost impossible to explain. Because God said. I don't even know why sometimes I believe. I go, you know, some of this stuff is crazy. What? Let's just talk about the gospel for a second, how impossible the gospel is. And then and the incarnation, the incarnation is, is literally the name that Christians give to this concept of God becoming flesh. 
So get this, the creator of the God, if you, the, the, tell me in your, not, not, not literally, just, just keep it in your brains, keep, it in, keep your inside voice. Tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit crazy. Okay, I believe that the God who created the universe came to us through a virgin because she never had intercourse. He was born, learned how to talk, walk, read, write, build things, never sinned. Then at the end of his life was, was literally on his way to martyrdom, died a death he should not have died, hung on a cross reserved for criminals, even though technically he is described as nothing ever gone wrong, never denied when people worshipped him, never denied being called God. In fact, came out and say it. That's why they killed him, because he said he was God and he wouldn't deny it. Then he died a, a death. There is, that's not a dispute. Then he rose again from the dead. He came alive. He appeared to a number of people. He said, I'm leaving my Holy Spirit with you till the end of time, and I will return one day riding on a white horse. Does that sound crazy to you guys? It sounds crazy to me even as I say it. And guess what? I believe it. Because my God is the God of the impossible. And so... Let me be honest, like if you're struggling with Joshua chapter 10, Christianity is going to hit you up for a number of impossibilities. This won't be the last time you face some sort of impossibility. And yet that's what I love about the text is not just that this is about impossibility, but this is about God being deeply personal. How personal is God? This God who's in charge of all things, is also so deeply personal. I think actually this is the harder one for me to believe if you want to know my personal story. My personal story says I don't struggle as much, maybe that's obvious to you, I don't struggle as much believing that God is in control of all things. I mean, I watched two baby girls be born. There's no way in my mind this could happen by accident. There's no way. I mean, if you've ever kind of studied the human body it's just crazy to me that there's any other option but somebody intelligently designed it and 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 god says clearly hey i created this and it makes sense to me i don't struggle with that the same way i go yeah but does that god care about my life right now and maybe that's your story maybe you don't struggle with the big god maybe you don't struggle with the enormous side of god but maybe you struggle that god actually cares about your life and so again, to go back to your prayer life, I want to just ask the question is, what's the big struggle for you? You notice the text doesn't talk at all about techniques of prayer. There is no points of like, hey, if you just have some sort of prayer labyrinth like, like uh, Joshua has, if you just say the words, if you just create poetry like Joshua, then you can, have, you can make your own personal son stand still. Which is, by the way, some, the way some people preach this. And I, I want to caution you a bit, like, it actually says this never happened again. God just doesn't throw this stuff out here. It's, it's, not, it's not like God's some big, giant, cosmic prayer machine that you just plug in your prayer and just cha-ching, I get what I want. That's not what the text 
is trying to say. But what it is trying to say is, how incredible is it that the same God who is so large that he could make the sun stand still for a day is also the same God that could be personal to you, that knows your name. How personal is God? Well, think about this for a second. God did not stay in heaven. He did not stay cosmic but he came to us in the form of a person. He came to us in a form whereby you would recognize him as Jesus. He didn't have any physical way. He didn't have a halo above his head like some cartoons would imagine that he does. He didn't necessarily have a glow to him. He had facial hair. He had BO. He had to go to the bathroom. He had annoying friends. He knew what it was like to listen to his mom and his dad. He snored, probably, depending on the size of his tonsils. Like, that's how personal God is. Can you imagine being like, Jesus, if you could just, you know, nudge Jesus on a camping trip. Can you turn over so you don't snore? I am the son of God. Anyways. The reason why I talk about that, isn't isn't it amazing and did you know that this is, this is the big tension point for so many religions? Very few religions have a problem with a large, enormous God. But many religions would say it is so humiliating and degrading for God to become so personal that he would actually have to go to the bathroom. And yet, that's the story of our God. That's how personal he is. And then, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with how Jesus taught us to pray. He was... He was literally gathered his disciples, which were his, the people who he was teaching. He gathered them around him and, and, and they said, Hey Jesus, can you teach us to pray? It's obvious you have some sort of close connection with the Father. Can you teach us how to pray? And this is what Jesus did. He goes, I'd love to. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. It's the first thing he says. It's the first thing he says. He doesn't say, the greatest person of all time, who is amazing, awesome. He says, our Father, who is in heaven. That word Father is actually the Greek and the Aramaic word for earthly father. Can you imagine that, hearing that for the first time, what that would be like? Some of you have good father stories. Some of you have really bad father stories. Can you imagine having a great father story? If you're a Christian, you can Essentially, this is Jesus saying, when you pray to the God of the universe, call him dad. Call him dad. I mean, that, doesn't, that, that, that should be mind-bending for us. Call him dad? In our city, it's full of people who work, and, and for the most part, it really matters who you know in this city. Amen? No one? No one's got a job through someone they know? Anyone? Okay? That's a good way to get a good job. You have a dad who knows somebody. You have a dad who owns a big business. You have a dad who's in charge of a lot of things. You have a dad who is important in the community. It's a great connecting point, and many people should use that. That's fine. But guess what? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the best connection dad ever. You have a dad that is in charge 
of the universe. He's that personal. I don't know about you, but when I struggle with my prayer life, that's what I need to hear. And, and no, we're not going to give a lot of technique. There's, there's no like, hey, if you do this, your prayer life can be better. I really think if you know who you're actually praying to, it'll just change your prayer life. When you actually know that God is like this, it should completely change what you pray for and how you pray. Hey, Dad, I need some help. Hey, Dad, can you do these things? Remember that in Joshua, God clearly laid out, he says, I, I really, I don't do anything that ultimately doesn't bring me glory, and yet there's so much that personally he wants to do through you and in you. And he wants to bring glory to himself, not by crushing you and making you a small person, but by filling your life with his love. By giving you purpose and saying, you can be an important part of my kingdom. I can do amazing things through people who give their lives willingly over to me. And so as you leave tonight, I want you to be thinking not about how do I pray more, but just, God, who are you? How can it be that you, the God of the universe, wants to use me, wants me to speak to you like I'm your, you're my dad. I, I love this about God. He doesn't just want us to think of him as our dad. He wants us to think of his sons and, his sons and daughters. He wants you to walk around and boldly proclaim, I am a son or I am a daughter of the king. He loves that stuff. He's like, this is the kind of bragging I allow for. This is the kind of boasting I'm behind is when you say, I actually, it's my dad. Just so you know, the earth's spinning fast. Yeah, it's my dad. My dad did that. I'm going to call the, the band up to play. And as, as they lead us through songs, they're going to lead us through a number of songs and, uh, that are really more like prayers than like songs. And what I want you to think about as we partake, and we do this each week, we call it the Lord's Table, Communion, um, Eucharist, all those things apply. And here's what it represents. The, the bread represents the flesh. This is a reminder that, that God did not stay distant from us, that he became very personal in the flesh. That's what the bread represents for us. And, and, and that he, he suffered in a physical body for us. But that relationship did not come without a cost. There was a cost to it. He actually died. He paid a price for our sins. And he said, if you admit that you need this kind of Savior, if you admit that I am the true Father, if you admit that I am the, the creator of the universe, I'm in charge of everything, he said, then you can have relationship to me, but I got to deal with this thing called sin. I got to deal with your disobedience. He said, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this exchange thing where I am going to punish my son for your sins and give you what my son earned. That's called the gospel. That's, that's the good news of Christianity. And that's represented in the, in the wine and the juice, the shed blood. The Bible says there is no sacrifice without the shedding of blood. There is no relationship with God without that shedding of blood. But here's the great news. You don't have to pay that price. Jesus Christ paid that price for you. 
And so as you come, I want you to think about those things. And as we sing together, these are really prayers about that very thing.